Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep that is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is, is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. We can join with the angel band saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, our Father. By the adoption that is given through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray that you would be with our, our brother, our minister of the gospel, Brother Rodney, as he gives forth the word. And we pray that you'd be with us. Give us ears to hear that we may be the children of the Almighty, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you, Tom. And thanks to all of you for being here with us uh, on this holiday weekend. Um, we wanted you to feel connected to our brothers and sisters who might be at the lake or various other places. And so that is why we've adjusted the heat accordingly so that you can feel uh, that you are with them there in that place. And so uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, we are going to, uh, as, as Tom read, we're going to begin our study on the book of Revelation. And our intent is to be in Revelation uh, throughout majority of the school year this year. In the book, of the book of Revelation, and I want to make clear from the beginning, just to help, it's never, ever revelations. It is revelation. The book of Revelation has historically been a book that evokes strong emotion. It tends that people tend to drift one way or the other in response to Revelation. There are some who, uh, in study of Revelation, become obsessed with Revelation. And I feel like uh, I grew up in an era... Just, and, may, and I know this is, it wasn't just this era, but I remember as a young man, like, man, Revelation was just kind of all of the, man, it was just really a popular, you know, the Left Behind series, the discussion of the end times, people trying to figure out codes for when the world was going to end. That was all I knew of Revelation. And so I knew that there were some who were obsessed with this book. But then what happened to me from that, what I think happens to many, is the fear and withdrawal that comes from that leads others to want nothing to do with the book. You read through your Bible, but you don't dare go to the last chapter. And when somebody says they're going to speak from the last chapter, you tend to be a little cautious of like, what kind of weirdness am I going to walk into here? And so this is not, you are not alone in that historically. Uh, many prominent theologians and, and folks throughout church history have struggled with Revelation. John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible except for Revelation. Martin Luther 
to say he struggled with the book of Revelation is to put it lightly. You can read about his quotes and the struggle that he had with the book. And so there are certainly, it certainly evokes strong emotion. Then most of that comes to the uncertainty that comes when we begin to discuss the end times. And I want to just tell you from the get-go that while the book of Revelation does teach us some things about the future, that is not the primary purpose of Revelation. The primary purpose of Revelation is in line with the primary purpose of all of Scripture, which is to make much of Jesus, exalting him rightly. Revelation is not a book to run away from, but Scripture tells us that it is a book to embrace. It is the only book in Scripture that promises a blessing to those who read it amongst the church. And in chapter 22, verse 10 of Revelation, it says, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. So God himself tells us, don't seal this, don't hide it, don't stay away from it. It is an important word for a people who live in the last days, which all of us post-Jesus do. From the beginning to the end, this is a revelation from Jesus about Jesus. And so with that, I want to open up, I want to read again, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what it is written, for the time is near. As we go through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is an example of the depths of God's word. You could study this book your entire life and you would constantly be learning new things and finding new truths in it. So my goal is to take really a bird's eye view of this book. And so this week will serve as a bit of an introduction. Revelation is unique in that it combines three forms of literary genre in one book. Verse 1 tells us that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. At verse 1, it, tells, it refers to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The term revelation means apocalypse. And so this book, not only is it, does it depict end times, but it is a part of apocalyptic literature. It belongs to a specific genre of ancient and Jewish, Jewish Christian literature, which scholars referred to as the apocalypses. In his textbook titled, Towards the Morphology of Genre, J.J. Collins describes this literary type this way. Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality. Revelation is apocalyptic in that though it is intended to remind us of our hope, it is also intended to empower us to resist evil by revealing the truth about unseen present realities, such as God and heaven and hell. Yet it is also revealing the truth about unknown future realities, such as judgment and salvation. Revelation is intended to wake us up to the truth of who God is and to engage us not merely with words. For us as humans, words tend to 
become simply ink on paper. We can struggle with reading our Bibles and we're merely reading words and trying to take hold of words, but we, we cannot sometimes be lazy in our Bible reading. We're not necessarily trying to put ourselves in the context. We're not necessarily taking those words and applying to them to what does that mean about me? What does that mean about his church today? We can come to a place where we're just reading words on paper, but in Revelation, that's incredibly difficult. These are more than words. These words demand imagination. They they demand the engagement of your mind as the symbolism is so robust. It it, it draws that out of us and the, the words are not merely allowed to be just words and it wakes us up to the truth of the glory of Christ. It's meant to help us see even this present moment from a divine perspective. There are gonna be times in this series where I would encourage you to imagine there were two screens, two big screens up here on the stage. And one of them is showing things that are taking place in the heavens, in the heavenly realms, amongst God and the angels and those who cry, holy, holy, holy. And on the other screen are things that are taking place here in the earth amongst us. And on both of these screens, you're seeing something that is taking place at the same time, but from two different perspectives. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic, But verse 3 tells us it's not merely apocalyptic literature. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who keep and hear what is written. It is apocalyptic, but the revelation is also prophetic. On five occasions, including this verse, revelation refers to itself as a prophetic work. However, the prophetic nature of Revelation has led many to view it simply as a book that is predicting the end times in explicit detail. This view has led to popular dispensationalist theology that's led to books and movies such as the Left Behind series and an overall resurgence in rapture theology. In the Bible tradition, though, prophecy is not solely about the future. Prophecy is typically the practice of God speaking on behalf to his people. A prophet speaks to the people of God on behalf of God in their current context. And sometimes this is incredibly challenging. Sometimes it's very encouraging. And this is not to say the Bible is full of prophecy and prophecy that we see fulfilled in Christ. But prophecy is not always about the uh, just future events. It's God's word to his people. This idea of rapture theology is part of what scares many about the book of Revelation. It's the reason why as a young kid, you know, like I, man, you run into to mom and dad's room and dad's clothes are laying there on the floor and your heart skips a beat for a minute. Like I was kind of scared. Not only was I scared that maybe I missed the ship all the time, but I was also even maybe more terrified that apparently you get raptured naked. Because like all the movies depicted just clothes left. And I, what was that? I was like 10. That's terrifying. I was terrified of this book. But... I want, I, want to, I want to share with you today that maybe Revelation is meant to intend more, to describe more than just a literal interpretation of the last days, as is common in prophecy. John appears to be a prophet continuing the work of the Old Testament prophets who came before him. And I, as I say that, and I'll, I'll go on this, I'll, I'll spend just a, a brief moment here. Many assume and believe the book of Revelation to be written by the Apostle John. And that certainly could be the case. But I just want to tell you up front, many don't believe that. And we do not know for certain that this is the Apostle John. Um, He doesn't refer to himself as the Apostle John. He doesn't give any indication uh, that he knew Jesus or that he was the beloved disciple. 
Um, so that, that doesn't mean he's not, but there are very mixed viewpoints from very smart people on that idea. But despite whether this is John the Apostle or whether this was John who was just serving the churches in Asia, what we know for certain about John is that he is a Jewish Christian prophet, and he seems to be a prophet serving primarily the, provident, the province of Asia. And because of John's role that he makes clear, it's important that we look at this book through the lens and context of early Christian prophecy. It seems John is a prophet who is active amongst the churches to whom he writes because he knows about these churches. He knows the intimate details about their life and how things are going in those places. And the role of the prophet is one that the New Testament tells us would play an important role in the life of the early church. Jesus himself tells the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. But Jesus tells the Pharisees, in these early days of the church, there would be those who served this role, who God would give vision, give a word to, and they would share it with God's people. And Christians, Christian prophets typically prophesied in the context of church gatherings. It seems safe for us to assume that this was John's regular role amongst the churches in the Asian province. And typically a prophet would share a word given to them by the Lord with the people of God. And in many ways, this is a continuation of what we believe about the preaching ministry. That while I do not, have not received a vision like John has, I have been given the word of God. And my job is to share God's word with God's people. And in many ways, it's a continuation of what we believe the early Christian prophets were called to do. John, however, had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos on account of his obedience to the Lord. And thus, he could not be with the gathered church to share this vision. Patmos was a prison island, not far from Ephesus. And John was either there because he was exiled there due to his obedience. Maybe he was cast out in prison there. Or it could be interpreted that he chose to banish himself to this island in order to be secluded and to receive this revelation from God. Again, as you're going to see a lot in Revelation, two views that could rightly be held to. Either way, though, this written word was intended to be read amongst the gathered church. And it's written in that way. It is important to understand that revelation is written for the church. And that's why the, that's why the blessing is promised for churches that would read it in this context. And part of why I feel it's important for us to do so and not shy away from such a task. But in the midst of doing that, it's important to understand the prophetic identity of this book because it clarifies the task of John as a prophet. His job, in part, is to proclaim the fulfillment of what God has revealed through the prophets that came before him. That's why this book is filled with old allusions to Old Testament prophecy. As a fellow prophet, he does not necessarily quote his predecessors, but he takes up and reinterprets their prophecies just as those who came before him did. He is continuing the work of the prophets that came before him. So the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, prophetic, but then verse 4 shows us that it's also something much more personal. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. In verse 4, we see 
like that, that part probably sounds very familiar to you. This is a letter. It's a personal letter. In verse 4, we see a format that is very similar to all of Paul's letters. This was the customary way to begin a letter to the church. And while John has certainly encountered an incredible experience, and while his depiction of what he has seen is both prophetic and poetic, he is ultimately reaching out pastorally to the people of God. This work is both of those things, but it is also a pastoral letter, personal and intended for the local church. And we'll see that more in the weeks to come as he speaks directly to the things that we struggle with and wrestle with and seek to do as the local church. In this verse 4, John identifies seven specific cities. So he's keeping us firmly rooted in history. This is a dramatic revelation that was written to a people who were living in a specific time, enduring a specific circumstance. And the order of the cities that he lists, they reflect a counterclockwise circle beginning in Ephesus and ending in Laodicea. John is writing to these seven churches and ultimately to you and I, the church universal. And we see that this letter is written by John, but it is written on behalf of the Trinitarian God. In verse 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This term is in reference to the Father, signifying his perfection in, as it relates to both time and eternity. The term is only found in Revelation, but it is certainly similar in posture to the title of I Am, found in Exodus 3.14. He is the sovereign Lord over all of history, and he is able to bring prophecy to its fulfillment and to deliver his people from all who stand against him. This book is written on behalf of the Father, but then it tells us this. It tells us that it is also written, and from the seven spirits. Well, there are different views on whom that term seven spirits is referring to. Some believe it's seven angels, symbolic of seven. There's, there's a lot of different ideas out there, but in this one, I do feel more confident. I feel confident in my belief that this statement is referring to the Holy Spirit. While the Holy Spirit is referred to often as one person, he is also referred to as seven spirits in chapter 3, verse 1, seven torches of fire in chapter 4, verse 5, and seven eyes in chapter 5, verse 6. And to understand this, because that seems weird, we have to understand that in the Bible, numbers are often symbolic of a greater truth. The number seven is especially prevalent in Scripture. The term seven is referred to over 700 times or alluded to. Jesus commonly speaks in groups of seven. Seven agonies on the cross, seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Seven is generally understood as a number that signifies perfection. As on the seventh day, God said it is good. And from the rest of time, seven would go on to be a number that symbolizes something good and as it should be. This reference to the Spirit as seven spirits is meant to depict His perfect omnipresence, that He is not bound to a place in time, but He is everywhere at all times. And verse 5 through 6, we see this written on behalf of the Father, the Spirit, and then verse 5 through 6 say this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The second half of verse 5, you might have noticed a change in the rhythm. The author actually breaks into song. This is a doxology of the Son. It's a hymn of praise. As the Father is perfect, in his person, and the Spirit is perfect in his presence, so the Son is perfect in his provision, and so John sings of that truth. The Son is listed last among the Trinity, which is odd, but it's done as a point of emphasis, as he is the focus of revelation. So in the middle of verse 5, John breaks out into a song, a hymn of praise to the Savior. As a pastor outlines the liturgy, for Sunday gathering, so John constructs a hymn of praise that the reader amongst the local church could have led the people in singing. This song celebrates the truth of who he is and what he has done. He is to be adored in his revelation that he is the faithful witness. Jesus is the revealer of the Father. It's through his perfect life, his perfect works, and his very words that we are able to see the character of God revealed. Before Jesus, there was, and there's still an incredible amount of mystery, but there were so many questions about the character of God and how to interpret the things that had happened. But in Christ, he is the faithful witness. We have, we have we've witnessed the character of God revealed before us. And his concern for the local church is revealed even in Revelation himself that Jesus has not removed himself from the church but continues to love and adore his bride, reflective of the Father's love. He is to be adored in his revelation. He is, adored to be, he is to be adored in his resurrection. That scripture, it tells us in this verse, he is the faithful witness, but he is also the firstborn of the dead. Jesus accomplished what no person ever has nor ever will, though so many have tried and dreamed of such. He died, then he rose from the dead, and he never died again. And all of human history has been filled with those who would give anything to attain such a reward, to attain such an accomplishment. Yet Christ is the only one who has. He is the firstborn of the dead. By the grace of God, this attribute, by just an incredible amount of mercy, is no longer bound to simply Jesus, though. He says he's the firstborn. The firstborn. This attribute is no longer limited to Christ. He's the firstborn of a new order. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is now our assurance of hope as we will be resurrected and will not die again, being in the presence of the Father. And he is to be adored in his rule. It tells us in this verse, in this song of praise, that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is a recurring theme that we'll talk about a lot throughout Revelation. It is not, all, it is not said that he will be, but that he is the ruler of the kings on the earth. All authority is under the dominion of King Jesus. All things are working together for his glory. While this may not be clear now, Revelation promises us that one day when he returns, it will be abundantly revealed. I don't know who will win the election in November. Hopefully it's not whichever candidate you might think is the Antichrist. But 
I know this, and I want you to know this, Christian. Jesus will still be on the throne. And in the midst of decades, just a whole lifetime, your centuries, the whole life of the local church has been spent in the midst of political uncertainty. We've gone through all kinds of seasons of, of both resentment and, and division and uncertainty. This truth has always remained the same. And Revelation was written to a group of people that were wrestling with such things. No matter what happens, Scripture tells us that he is the ruler of all the kings on the earth. And we're to adore him in his redemption. He loves us. He freed us by his blood. His love is ongoing. And we know this because of the cross. Because he has not ceased to draw people to himself. He has set us free from our sins. And he became our substitute. He lived the life we should live, but we cannot. And he died the death we deserve, but now we no longer face. He paid the penalty that was due us, but that we could never ever, ever pay. He, he freed us from sin's penalty, and thus he became our justification, that he made us just before the Lord. He is freeing us from sin's power. Even now, as the people of God, we are being changed for our sanctification, that he is making us more like himself. And he will free us from sin's very presence at our glorification, that one day the battle we fight with sin will not be a battle we fight any longer. And we are to adore him in his reign, that he has made us a kingdom of priests. To be fully forgiven by the Holy Father would be more than enough and far more than we could ever deserve. Yet our God did not stop there. We have entered into the dominion of Christ as fellow heirs and priests. We were not merely forgiven to now be slaves. Like we would be lucky to be slaves on the farm of the Father. We would be lucky to just to serve Him in whatever menial tasks He would have and to be able to just be near His presence. But He doesn't just call us to that. Just as the prodigal son would have been fortunate if the father would have simply given him a job or made him a slave on the land, like he would have been blessed to be in such a position, but the father didn't just do that. The father embraces him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts a robe around him, and he enters into this position as an heir. After this time of leaving the father, he is welcomed back, and he enters right back in as an heir to all that the Father had. And so God not only forgives us of our sins, but we take part in the reign of Christ. We are heirs to the kingdom. Peter calls us a holy priesthood. The kingdom of God is filled with sinners who were freed by the blood of Jesus and now glorify the Father through serving, worshiping, and bearing witness to the kingdom that is both right now and also not yet. John makes much of who Jesus is. And then in verse 7, we see an acclamation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When a man sees the glory of God, he will respond in fear and awe. And I do not mean fear in the traditional sense. 
but the glorious fear we feel in a moment when we are made increasingly aware of our smallness. This last week, we had a, uh, we had a great time out at the creek, if you got to join with us to start off our fall. And uh, my middle daughter saw all the kids jumping off the tree, and she was convinced, I'm in. I want to go jump off the tree too. And you may have heard an acclamation as she decided halfway across this long tree that she had changed her mind. But there was no way, there was no going back. As we're crossing the tree in a moment, my daughter, as she sees, like, it doesn't really look like there's a current until you see it, like, swarming, coming up against the tree pretty hard. And it doesn't look like the tree is that high until you're standing there. And my daughter, in a moment, realized her smallness <laughs> in a way that she had not realized before. And her reaction was to, to cling to me, to cling for dear life. Like, don't let me go. Don't let me be swallowed up by this, this ocean in her eyes. Many of us feel the same thing. When the big storm comes through, when we stand at the base of a mountain that is far different than the postcards we have seen, when we stand at the foot of the ocean and realize it does not end as far as we can see, there is a good and healthy even worshipful fear that comes when we become aware of our smallness. And every, the, even the Christian, even the devout, feels, they, they experience that each time God reveals himself. And for the child of God, that feeling leads you to reach to the Father for safety. Just as Sadie, like in her midst of fear, she grabbed hold of the Father, please don't, just don't let me be taken away. For us, when we see the Lord as He is, we run to the Father who loves us, our protector. The child of the Lord sees the triumphant Christ and in that moment sees everything He has ever desired manifest. But for the enemy of the Lord, there will be great weeping. Their fear will be different. Because it will not be the fear of a child running to the father, but it will be the fear felt by an enemy who has resisted a force that they were abundantly unaware of the scope of. No man who stands in opposition to the Lord will stand. Evil's day will end at the return of Christ. It will be no more. To stand in opposition to Christ is to die. But then... Verse 8, all of this, this promise, this assurance is signed off on in a, in a, in a verse of just div divine self-identification. I am the Alpha and the, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In this proclamation, the Lord declares his omniscience, that he is holy and rules over all things, and that all of creation falls under the dominion of his sovereign will. And thus, his promise is absolute on the very basis of who he is. As we close this morning, I want to close just with verse 8. As believers, we tend to wrestle with the in-between of life. We know that in the beginning, all was good. That the, in the, the alpha, all was good. And we know that in the end, all will be good. The omega, all will be good. But 
this can lead us to assume that the middle will be good as well. But this is not the case. God reminds us that the creator who spoke the world into existence and the triumphant king who will stand over his enemies is also the God of the in-between, is the God of the right now. In our days of uncertainty and the different eras, including we'll talk about some of the things that the church was facing on this specific day, God wants to remind his people that as all was created good and all will end well, he is not out of touch with the in-between and is still Lord of now. The unlovely middle is connected to a beautiful beginning and a glorious ending. And thus, we endure as God's people. And would we pray to that end this morning? Father, thank you for revealing your, your, for giving us your word. God, you are glorious. Your word is, is just magnificent. We, we gaze upon it, we, we, we go back to it, and, and you teach us things that we, we didn't even see before. Your word is living and acting. And, um, God, may it be our authority in all things. God, just as you revealed yourself through the prophets, thank you that you continue to reveal yourself through your word. Lord, would we not lose sight of Jesus? Like, God, it's easy for us to see you revealing yourself in a prophetic vision and to think of just that we, 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 we are in awe of that. But Lord, forgive us that we're not equally in awe of this book that you've given us, that you've given us just as much, if not abundantly more, through your word. Would we cling to it rightly from that posture? Would your word not be merely ink on a paper to us, but would it be transforming us? Would it creep in and transform every area of our lives? Would it be our guide in all things? God, I ask that this study of the Revelation might help instill such a love for Scripture in us. I ask, Lord, that you might make much of yourself in our hearts and in our minds. You might transform the way we live. And maybe, Lord, that's the very blessing that you speak of. Whatever that, whatever that, that may mean, I, I ask for it. Lord, thank you for this day that we can come here as a people who have been made heirs through Jesus. I love you. I pray these things in your good name. Amen.